You're listening to El Clásico, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España from Barcelona to Madrid. Today we're in Arinsal, Andorra. You are indeed listening to El Clásico. My name is Daniel Friber and I'm the host of this episode and I am in or at Arinsal in Andorra. And joining me tonight is the wistful gazer from Almeria and the star of the eponymous daily feature on the cycling podcast, Fran Reeseando. Uh, Fran, no longer, no more gra- graveyard slot for you. You are front and centre um, in my co-pilot seat today for a whole episode of lovelorn and nostalgic contemplation. Hopefully not too much of that, but we will have a bit of wistful gazing later fran tell the listeners where are we we're recording this in person face to face where are we exactly we are in part one of the cycling podcast which is already a feat for me after <laughs> i think it's five years since the last time i featured in part one yeah lot of meteoric emotion. promotion <laughs> yeah. yeah we are in arinsal which is uh, uh one of the many villages here in Andorra. We are in the outskirts of this village, right atop the Col de Pal, which uh, back in the 90s and the 80s was used several times in the Vuelta and also in the Volta Catalunya, I think, in the Nautis. And right now it uh, took the name of Arinsal for the ski station that they have set here. Because in Andorra there are a lot of people that have moved here for tax reasons, but there are as many ski stations as tax cheaters. You know? Tax cheaters. That, I don't think tax cheater is the word that we um, traditionally use in English. Um, people who take advantage of the favourable fiscal circumstances that prevail here in Andorra. Saw a lot of them today. Well, a lot, a lot of them are racing the Vuelta a España. Sepp Kuss, who's one of those Andorra residents, he said today half the peloton uh, lives in Andorra. Um, Fran, did you see any illustrious cycling Andorra residents who aren't part of the Vuelta a España today on your way to the finish? I saw a couple and had a chat with them, um, a couple of them. Um, Jack Haig, we caught him out on a training ride. Um, he was riding through Andorra La Vella. And um, we wound down the window, had a nice chat with Jack. He's getting ready for, I think he's coming back to racing at the GP Plouet. He's already raced a lot this season. I thought he was getting a six-month holiday. No, no, no. He's raced a lot. And then I think he's doing the Canadian races, he said. Um, But he's following the Vuelta very closely. He might be at the start tomorrow. And uh, Jose Joaquin Rojas as well Mm -hmm. of Movistar. We, um, We happened upon him on the main road through Andorra. Mm-hmm. Do you well, see anyone? Well, well, I saw Eder Sarabia, which is a former f- football club Barcelona second coach, currently head coach of the Andorra Football Club, which is owned by Gerard Piquet. <laughs> pronunciation police. I was pulled up yesterday. I was under the impression I'd done a bit of prep for the pronunciation of Gerard Piquet and listened to a Catalan pronounce it, and I'd obviously misheard. It's Gerard Piquet, not Gerard gone from yeah other than that i haven't i haven't seen anyone i have been writing the whole day i'm thinking about the whole day about andorra and why the people live here you know and there is actually a handful of reasons other than taxis there is people who actually like living here i i can't i mean i can't see myself living here and almeria is 894 kilometers away um, exactly. in the deep south of spain so i would understand it i can't understand you not feeling very at home here yeah but you know uh, christian rodriguez who, who lives 
15 kilometers from where I am in uh, Elegido. He moved to Andorra this uh, month of February. He had a kind of a rough patch in which he separated from his long-time girlfriend, which, which whom he had been living for years already, and he decided to completely split from Almeria. He moved to Andorra, and he told me that he feels really at ease here and that he's surprised. Fran, this sounds as though we're already lurching into wistful gazing territory. Um, Fran, I'm going to cut. I'm going to interrupt you there, lest we indulge it any longer. And we're going to go to the first feature of tonight's podcast. Um, it was an exciting stage. We're going to hear all about it now. From you, Fran. El resumen de la etapa. The tale of the etapa. Fran, off you go. Tell us what happened today. Well, Daniel, it's been a stage three of La Vuelta 2023. 158.5 kilometers between Surya and Arinsal, going through deep Catalonia. You probably notice a lot of Esteladas, which is the Catalan pro-independence flags, along the route as an 11-man break led the race with Varain, Damiano Caruso, Bora Hans Groes, Leonard Canna, or Loro Destiny, Eduardo Sepulveda. They built a backup of up to five minutes that got reduced down to one atop the Col de Ordino, as the three aforementioned riders established La Fuga de la Fuga with around 20 kilometers to go. Team DSM, Fermanich, was the main responsible for this steady pace of the punch, and it whittled the punch down to around uh, 50 riders, with Chris Hamilton and Roman Bardet sacrificing their likes for the sake of Max Poole, young Britain. An attack by UAE's Jay Vine woke up Jumbo Visma. The Dutch team took the helm with two kilometers of Ordino left to climb, and Sudal Quickstep took over soon after. Notwithstanding, Daniel, <laughs> the pace of this 50-strong peloton reached kind of a stalemate at the base of the final climb to Arinsal, and that enabled the front trio to grow its advantage up to 1 minute 30, whereas Eduardo Sepúlveda got dropped because of a puncture in the front wheel and, a sh- and the shaky hands of a Shimano mechanic. That did, <laughs> that did, yeah, he told, he, told me, he told it to me like this, you know, that, that the, the mechanic was too nervous, so he lost our I mean, chance. I've had so much grief on social media, the Shimano mechanics, no wonder they're a little bit nervous now when, it, um, when they have to change someone's wheel or tyre. Uh, and also, you know, they, their work is more delicate now that everyone is on disc wheels. Well, so... Um, Anyway, five kilometers to go, and UAE Team Emirates hits the front of the bunch. They are setting up an uh, attack from Juan Ayuso that, that it actually lit the fireworks as uh, Jumbo Bisma was willing and able to set a strong pace to drop the GC contenders, many GC contenders such as Darren Thomas or Eddie Dunbar. And of course, they pulled back, they brought back Kemna and Caruso. So yeah, it, call, it all came down to sprint on which Remco Benepool got both the stage win and the red jersey and also collided against an officer of the Andorra police. Are you sure that it was the police? Um, because I yeah. saw someone I, th- I know go flying um, and this person is a press officer. I'm not going to say exactly who it was. And I'm not 
a hundred percent sure. Um, but I thought that he'd collided with her. Um, that narrows it down already. Um, other people said he collided with a barrier. I don't think that was the case. Um, on social media, of course, immediately people suggested that it was just journalists in general who were standing too close to the finish and we were standing where we were told to stand weren't we We, it was maybe 100 meters not even 100 meters after the finish line Um, as most people would have seen on television it was slightly downhill and well it was quite uh, it was a dramatic moment wasn't it because within seconds of Remco coming over the line so beating his chest celebrating quite ostentatiously quite flamboyantly um, he was on the floor and there there was panic yeah. It was drama. Yeah, it was it, it was one of these unfortunate events that can happen in a cycling race in which the environment is not controlled. You know, the, this is the, this is a battle, the largest play field in the world, the one we have. So many things can arise. In this case, what I understand, what I gather, is that there were, as always, hundreds of people there three or four staffers per team, then the media, and then this woman, which apparently works in the communication. Ah, okay. Uh, She's an officer. It wasn't who I thought it was then. Yeah, she's a a communications officer, so to speak, with the police of Andorra. Ah, She got carried away by an ambulance. She has something in her right wrist. Uh, Yeah, and uh, so, yeah, shit happens. I mean... There is not. I don't, I don't think that there is much more that we can make about it, other than maybe argue that the space after the finish line was a bit short. Yes, it and was. That maybe placing the the finish line after that on a downhill was not ideal either. But I, again, it's something that we can argue. But I am unsure of the conclusion. Well, Fran, if nothing else, it made for. Um, again, dramatic photos at the finish. Remco Evenepoel bloodied all down one side of his face. Um, shades of Bernard Hinault um, after the state of Saint Etienne in 1985, the Tour de France. That's an, an iconic image where his sort of Ray-Bans jammed into his eye and he came over the line um, bloodied. There have been other images like that, Laurent Jalabert in the Tour um, in 1993, I think that was in Almontier. Um, and Remco was in pretty good humour when he got up. Um, apparently his first words were, I won. And um, in his press conference, he then talks about having lost a bit of flesh and meat from his head, which will help him um, going uphill in the stages to come. Fran, we haven't mentioned, we haven't given a rundown of the results. Um, Remco Evenepoel winning the stage, Jonas Vingegaard second, Juan Ayuso third, Primoz Roglic um, not managing to roglify this mm-hmm. third stage to Arinsal, maybe somewhat surprisingly. Marc Soler, uh, Andorra resident Enric Mas, you mentioned Geraint Thomas lost some time we're going to talk about the sort of losers of the day later on and um, i'll stop there as far as the stage is concerned and we'll go to the general classification yesterday fran i tipped eric mas to be in the red jersey tonight mm-hmm. he's not in the red jersey remco Evenepoel is in the red jersey um mas though is second third place one of the i wouldn't say pleasant surprises of the day because a lot of people thought he would have a very good vuelta uh, lenny martinez of groupama fdj He's in third place, 11 seconds down rem- on Remco. Jonas Vingegaard is 31 seconds down. Alexander Vlasov, 33 seconds down. Kian Uterbrooks, on the same time as his Bora Hansgrohe team leader, he's sixth. 
uh, Roman Bardet 7 35 seconds down Butrago of Bahrain 35 seconds down and well we've got Primoz Roglic standing 10th he's 37 seconds down but Fran before we talk a little bit more about Remco's stage win and the start of who knows uh, an extended stint in the red jersey although he did hint tonight that his team will look to give away the red jersey in the coming days um, let's hear shall we from um, some of the protagonists today we're going to hear from Jonas Vingegaard who didn't manage to pull off the stage win but was, was hot on Remco's wheels although he did lose a second we're going to hear from Sepp Kuss who, well, he, he opened hostilities, really, didn't he, for Jumbo Visma at least. Um, it looked at one stage as though they were trying to give him, gift him uh, a stage win, much in the same way that he got a stage win in the Tour de France in Andorra, where he lives a couple of years ago. That didn't happen. And he also wasn't able to lead out Roglic for the stage win either. And then we're going to hear it finally from one of the losers of the day, one of the riders who was very disappointed after the finish line. That is Garrett Thomas. Yeah, he was very, very strong and he deserved the win. So, uh, I mean, I wasn't surprised because he just did the sprint. So, uh, yeah. to be second today was uh, the best I could do. And I'm actually, after the circumstances, I'm happy with it. Well, it wasn't my best day, uh, but that's how it is, and I just have to keep fighting. Uh, I'm happy with second, obviously, so, uh, yeah. No, we, we knew it would be really good for for Primoz especially, because uh, yeah, with so much wind, it was most likely going to stay together on the last climb. Everyone's really fresh at this point in the race, uh, but I, I saw the opportunity, and... Uh, yeah, I figured I'd give it a go, but uh, yeah, it's a tough, tough climb. <laughs> and obviously we can feel the wind up here. What was it doing on the climb and how did it affect the way things panned out? Yeah, it was pretty windy. Uh, just strange weather. I mean, <laughs> a week ago it was super warm and uh, almost no wind. But uh, yeah, it's the, the conditions definitely play a factor. Uh, everyone's so equal at this point of the race that... Uh, with with that and, and the the conditions, it, it kind of uh, yeah, everybody negates each other in a way. And when we saw Primoz there in the group, we expected a typical Roglic sprint finish. Didn't happen. Should we read much or anything into that? No, I think uh, yeah. When I was finished there in the last 500 or so, um, I saw he was a bit a bit late to the wheels, a bit a bit too far back. And it's, it's such a tight corner in the end here. Uh, so I, I think it's, yeah, when the group is that big, it's like a bunch sprint almost. Remco is obviously on form. Um, that's what we did learn today. Yeah, yeah, we expected him to be in really good shape already. Uh, you know, in, in the Worlds and, and everything. Also from last year in the Volta, he was flying in the first week. Um, so, yeah, I, we, we expected that, but uh, still a long way to go. With Caruso up there, we knew they'd ride to sort of bring it back or keep it within touching distance anyway, and then hard pace on the last climb. And uh, yeah, for me, just just didn't have it today. Maybe too early in the race for this uh, first stage in the mountains, third day in the race. Yeah, obviously it's early on, and uh, still got about 16 hour days to come, so. 
yeah we won't get too uh, despondent just yet but just keep keep fighting yeah and obviously well, as you said not the day you wanted today anything surprised you about the way the race was ridden generally I know there's a bit well, there's a lot of wind on the final climb not really not once that break went and the, the strong guys in there we knew they'd ride hard behind and uh, you know wasn't sure whether they'd close it or just keep it you know to under a minute by the finish but yeah they rode hard and uh, brought it back and uh, yeah we got one for the stage and yeah for me it's just a uh, pretty rubbish day really Arriba Larry Warbas Andale Andale Larry, I didn't ask you the other day about the... Well, you had a visit from your fan club the other day. Yeah. Um, we saw the president at the Giro. The president was in Barcelona. Uh, the fan club... Does it still have one member? Despite your increasing popularity, mainly thanks to the Cycling Podcast. Yeah, I don't know. You'll have to ask him, but uh, at least uh, I don't know if it's grown to uh, the biggest proportions yet, but uh, maybe one day, so we'll see. But I was surprised to see he made it all the way to Barcelona, so that's cool. Your sort of ranks of supporters, it's swelling, isn't it? And you think, we, we think that the Cycling Podcast might have something to do with that. I agree. I, I actually think uh, my appearances on the podcast have probably helped my... Uh, my image <laughs> what, what about your pay packet do you suspect that that might have gone up slightly as well due to your, the notoriety the, the fame gained through the cycling podcast uh, unfortunately no that hasn't really risen so uh, I'm going to have to uh, leverage that somehow I think but, but yeah not yet not yet Larry I've just been over at Yumbo Visma they say they swear they don't know who is the real or they don't know who's going to be better Vingegaard or Roglic um, is there a sense in the peloton of who is the well, the man more likely no I mean I saw them waiting for both of the guys yesterday after all of their various mishaps so uh, um, I'm guessing they're going to take whoever's best I actually believe that yeah well Fran as the wind whistles through the building in which the press room is housed on top of the on top of the mountain here in Andorra at Arinsal that was our good friend the Motown maestro Larry Warbass this morning um, speculating well it was, it was more my speculation about who was the real Jumbo Visma leader whether we were going to find out today um, I did the, the sort of ritual lap of the Jumbo Visma team cars this morning to see where the bikes were positioned and um, Primoz Roglic's bike is sort of positioned in uh, what's it's slightly more accessible I would say it depends on the roof racks doesn't it on top of yeah. cars and you can't always definitely say that the bike on the outside in on the mechanic side is is the team the leaders way. because sometimes it's the bike at the front on the right hand side that's more accessible but Roglic's is on the back closest to the mechanic's door effectively mm-hmm. and Vingegaard's is the one at the front um, however Fran um, talk- I, I really, I really like that you know these kind of details, and well, you, you go chase well, them. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah. Whether it's in any way relevant, I do not know. But Fran, <laughs> um, I think a, a bit of a blow for um, Jumbo Visma today. Not so much because Primoz Roglic didn't do what ordinarily you might expect him to do on a finish like that. But we had it confirmed to us again, and I asked Remco even Paul about this in the press conference. That uh, the, the the sort of the, the the ultimate weapon that Jumbo Visma and particularly Roglic have employed over the last four or five years of this devastating uphill sprint has kind of been neutered by the fact that Remco Evenepoel has discovered mm-hmm. um, or we've discovered Remco Evenepoel's deadly uphill sprint as well and 
I would put it to you, Fran, that this is going to have to cause a bit of a rethink um, from Jumbo Visma on some of the uphill finishes that we're going to see over the next three weeks. Mm-hmm. Don't you think that they counted on this already? I mean, because Remco, he has been, he has already I think they proved did. this. I, I mean, I think they did maybe even in today's stage because there were six mm-hmm. bonus seconds on top of the Ordino climb. Mm-hmm. Um, had we seen the Remco of maybe a year ago or two years ago or had um, Roglic been up against a rider known not to have a fast sprint, then they may even have decided to bring or try to bring the the brake back today mm-hmm. in time for those six seconds on top of Ordino and then ridden emphatically, decisively to try to win the stage with Roglic at the end. And they did neither of those two things, did they? Yeah. I mean, uh, what I... What I think in terms of the Jumbo Visma strategy is that they have a silver bullet that they can count on, which is the Tourmalé stage, which is the only stage on which we are going to have properly long climbs and uh, above 2,000 meters of altitude, which is something that normally should go in favor of both Bingegaard and Roglic when compared to Remco. And besides that... Uh, the fact that Remco is quick uphill, the, it's something that they should already have into account. It's a it's a good it's a rival on that respect. It's a challenger that can keep the bonnet second from them, you know, and that has a lot to gain and not that much to lose if it comes down to uphill sprinting time and again, as it often happens in the Volta. Remco has this time trial. On, uh, to his benefit unless we have an atomic Vingegaard performance like the one we had in Tour de France and then the real strength of Jumbo Visma against Sudal Quickstep is the depth of the roster really what Dylan Bambarle did today he, he, he did not only do an excellent job an excellent stage and pulled great he also trumped uh, Peter Seri because at some point they were the, the two of them were cooperating, and Peter Seri didn't was not bringing the gap the gap down, whereas when Dylan Van Varley took over, which is his equivalent in yeah, the rank, yeah, yeah. you know, when Dylan Van Varley took over, he made the peloton explode, or at least at least at the very least he set the peloton to explode when later on Team DSM hit the afterburner. Mm. Mm. Remco, he really made a point of talking about how strong his team were today and, well, he, he, he put it to us, the press, that this was a bit of a riposte to everything that's been said about Sudal Quickstep not being strong enough. He talked about Catania, how he was really strong by Jolly, but he went through every single rider and named and talked about, described their job today and said how they'd done it brilliantly. We'll talk a, a bit more about a one of the Sudal Quickstep domestics in a minute, but um, we heard earlier from Sepp Kuss, and I don't know if this was pointed, I don't know if there was anything sort of coded in this, but Sepp said we, we knew that Remco would be really, really strong in the first week, and he was really strong in the first week uh, last year. I don't know whether um, that was a sort of, I'm, I'm not going to say like barbed, um, but anywhere in that is the the message that maybe Jumbo Visma think Remco will come in very hot and, mm-hmm. and may fizzle slightly. Yeah, and that's exactly what happened. What was happening last year when Primoz has the Chi Wing Gum, well, 
the chiwi mother what what, what was uh, it tomares in uh, the state yeah. of tomares where yeah, he, plastilina, the yeah, plastilina they, where he, he slips on some kind of plasticine we think yeah exactly well we we we, I, we both discovered that you know it was such a finding it made i mean it it was the best performance of that vuelta the two of us around the plasticine <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you know it's a uh, primos uh, primos roglic was it was slightly getting closer and closer. He was getting a hold of event pool, stage after stage in last year's Vuelta. This year's has just begun, and nothing has really happened in terms of GC. You know, uh, there, if in the big picture, the gap is not that big. We know that Grand Tours are now played in tight gaps, mm. but the Vuelta is still an exception to this, because the Vuelta. There, there, it's this time of the season on which everyone might struggle to find the energy in order to keep going. So normally there comes to a point on which gaps get bigger and bigger. And so far we have only seen a team time trial, which was, uh, yeah, just a trial of mm. what we might see. We have seen this uphill finish, this this mountain top finish, which was a which was a nice stage, but that has been very affected by two factors in my opinion. One was the wind yep. to keep things together. Second, the climbs in Andorra are great for training, but are not that good for racing. You know, are not that qualify that. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean that it's hard to actually create a gap on a climb in Andorra because they are kind <laughs> of... a sweeping statement. Yeah, I mean... It's something uh, the DNA of Andorra climbs doesn't you know, lend itself to people cycling faster than other people. Is that, is that why? Yeah, Am this I reading is, this but correctly? You know, this is the kind of a statement that if it was given by someone who had won three to the France, for example, everyone would take them as yeah, religion. you're Fran Reyes. Yeah, and I am All Fran you Reyes. do is gaze wistfully out of windows <laughs> and you've <laughs> never won the Tour de France. Exactly. And Chase, and Chase, and Chase who has Rencomen Blue crashed against, you know, but well... Uh, no, but you know, you know the, the it's rolling climbs, large roads, which are with a very smooth surface. All that plays against mm, gaps being created. And wind, it's quite windy here, isn't and it? It's, it's, really it's windy. often quite windy here. Yeah, I mean, it's it's only normal because there are several valleys in Andorra. A big one, which is the one that comes from Spain, from La Seu du Rogel, up to Andorra la Vella. And from them, there are three or four mountains, I think it, it is, that surround Andorra on, their north, on its northern side. So the dynamics of the wind created by these, four, by these three valleys creates a weather that is not ideal for someone to attack. And to atta I, I remember this Vuelta. If, if I let you elaborate on this theory for another five minutes or ten minutes even, you might come dangerously close to convincing me, but I'm, I'm, I'm not buying this. I'm not buying this. There's nothing inherent in Andorra climbs which means that people can't open up time gaps. Fran, I'm, I'm going to move the conversation on. I'm going to ask you about two Spaniards today, Eric Mas and Juan Ayuso. A good day for both of them. I mean, I said that maybe, yes. I think Mass might well have hoped that he was going to take red today. He didn't. Um, Ayuso, obviously, well, he had his eye on a stage win. He lives in Andorra. He attacked. I think it was the, he was really the first general classification contender to attack, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, attacked into the wind 
I mm. guess, and sort of blew back into the lead group. But talk about their rides today, those two riders. Mm-hmm. So uh, for Enric Mas, I heard him. He was in good spirits. He was uplifted by his ride. I think there is always a deal of insecurity when you come into a Grand Tour, not having raced. And in his case, he came from injury. Then he had suffered a crash at the end of July and it was after that crash that he could really train for three straight weeks and come into the Vuelta. He did a great work, but a short one. So he, there was a certain insecurity on how he will perform today and how he will perform in the rest of the Vuelta. Today, he gave a small statement, especially to himself and to his team, that he's up to the task of being a leader and a proper GC contender. Pablo Lastras, his DS, was also quite a, quite a bit at the finish, saying... He was quite? A bit. A bit. A bit, yeah. yeah happy, you know. He was happy that uh, Enrique had been where he had been, always in a good position, not missing any move, which is something that he tends to do in mm. some other races. And uh, as for Juan Ayuso, there was this moment, man. 3.5 kilometers to go, he attacks. And the whole finish line erupts in a roar. You know, mm. everyone was happy to see Juan Ayuso attack. I have never seen that with Enric Mas, you know. Uh, he is definitely a character that has gone to connect with the mm. Spanish public, in this case with the Andorra, <laughs> with the Andorra audience. He, has, he had a great deal of his family here also today. There was like five to ten people on a UAE sports coat, you know. Uh, he was greeting them as I was talking to him. And um, I think he proved that he's going to be a proper contender for podium, which is already a big deal, being 20 and facing the opposition that he's facing, mm. the field that he's facing. And to be honest, I have heard from several insiders that he can even fight for the win, that he even has a case for him to fight for the win. Fact is, he picked some bonus seconds today, if I'm not mistaken. He, so in that domain, he can defend himself against yeah, Renko, Roglic and Bingegaard, exactly. And he is out of the entire field. He is the only one who has prepared deeply and yeah, consciously for this grand tour. Yeah, I'm, I was slightly worried by Roglic's positioning in the finale. I, I'm someone who always, I will always read a lot into where someone finishes in an uphill sprint I think it's important I think it told us today that Remco is in fantastic form we could tell that because he looked like you know he was going up the climb whistling um, this afternoon so we know that he's going really well and it was proven to us today Roglic just the fact that he was a little bit slow to get in the position he needed to be in around that last corner we heard Sepp Kuss mention it I don't know whether there was um, a worrying sign therein Fran I'm going to just talk a, a little bit about some of the other disappointments today Garant Thomas we heard from him bad day he was downbeat um, <laughs> Enric Mas was upbeat no, it was Pablo Lastras, wasn't it? It was upbeat. Garant Thomas was downbeat, 47 seconds. Hugh Carthy, 1 minute 14. He lost Landa, 1 minute 29. We'll get to another rider now, Eddie Dunbar, um, mm. who, well, his, 
his feelings, um, his reaction to the stage was pretty similar to Garant Thomas's. In fact, Fran, you spoke to him um, <laughs> yeah. up here at the finish in Arinsa. Let's hear from Eddie Dunbar, shall we? What has the feeling been like for you today on this final claim, particularly? Uh, shit. Yeah, that's the easiest way to describe it. Yeah, it was my best day on the bike. I suffered a lot. Um, yeah, I just tried limiting my losses, really. Um, and this, I, yeah, hopefully it might come good in the next few days. A climb like this, with this headwind, with the pace being set by the others, as you've seen them going away, how long can it feel? How how difficult it is to hang on yeah it's just tough um, I think when you're one one of the teams who were kind of riding on the front today it made it a lot easier um, in the middle of the peloton at the back the accelerations were hard you know um, and that builds up over 150k stage so um, yeah maybe them guys were just a bit fresher coming into the climb but uh as I said, yeah, yeah, just one of the legs at the moment. So Dunbar losing two minutes, 37 seconds, not a good day for him. Um, Fran, you also mentioned earlier in the podcast, Max Poole, the mm-hmm. young, very promising British climber. I've been talking about how well he rode at the Dauphiné and he's come here. This is his first taste of Grand Tour racing and, well, DSM were were riding for most of the day on the front mm-hmm. for Romain Bardet maybe trying to get him into the red jersey but also to see what Max Paul could do um, didn't go too well on the final climb for Max Paul he lost 9 minutes and 36 seconds a um, couple of pleasant as I called them pleasant surprises earlier Fran uh, Lenny Martinez and Kian Utterbrooks they were both in the leaders group mm-hmm. and um, well we sort of knew that they might they might get into the mix um, for the general classification mm-hmm. maybe less so Martinez a lot of people think that he might have a tilt at the mountains competition but again he underlined what a promising climber he is yeah I think that both riders are pretty exciting On both, in both cases the uh, fear is that they will probably sink a bit and they will pay for the reference in the third week as happened with every Grand Tour debut and on the Grand Tour debut uh, in the case of Martinez I think that he when I look at him I see a rider that is already more developed than he seems you know even if he's short and that gives an him a child light. an extreme light yeah he's, he, ha- he has this childish appearance but on the other hand he has been training very well structuredly for three four years already so we don't think I, I, don't, I think that we are not far from seeing his peak performance wise but that's, that peak is already quite high because today he was properly sitting amongst the, the top 10 best climbers of this Vuelta I wouldn't be surprised if he would play for the win on a steeper finish it'd be somewhere like Choret de Cati or Havalambre in a few days time for example do you know do you remember the Choret de Cati the first time that they went uh, up to uh, up to up this hill in, in the world in the early 90s 2000 it was in the in the year 2000 we had this dramatic finale with with, f- with Fabio Rosoli exactly Fabio Rosoli and uh, Eladio Jimenez Eladio Jimenez is here in the Volta as a chauffeur uh, Fabio Rosoli I I got in touch with him uh, to discuss this stage he's now a spinning instructor isn't he in Spain I yes, believe yes exactly well no longer actually because he is re- he retired just last year but he has been a spinning and a spinning teacher in Pamplona for 
most of his life, you know. He told me an, a great anecdote on how he went partying with uh, José Luis Arrieta and Chente García Costa, which is such an unlikely company for a party. But and that and, and this, on this party that he met his first love in Pamplona. Afterwards, he got to meet Uh-oh. a second love. Wistful gazing a lot. Yeah, no, no, no come on. <laughs> so uh, and right now, he is retired and he's devoted to a small cycling club that he has in this village in the outskirts of Pamplona. On the day of Chore de Cati stage, he's organizing a nighttime criterium for children aged between 5 and 16. So if you are in Pamplona and have a child, please sign him up. Going to, he's going to enjoy it and have a blast. And he promised me he gives a trophy to every single child that goes to his races. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Um, <laughs> if you're in Pamplona on the date of the Chorette de Cati stage, bear that in mind. Um, Fran, I said earlier we would talk a bit more about one of Remco Avenapool's domestiques today. James Knox is here at the Vuelta a España, stalwart of the cycling podcast in Grand Tours um, in the past. And we haven't heard from James for a while in Grand Tours because he hasn't done one for a while um, the, his last one was the 2022 Giro d'Italia um, he's had some good results this year second in the British Nationals he was second on the last day in Tour of the Basque Country in at Arate he was eighth overall there but it's been an up and down couple of years for James and I was well, I've been curious uh, I wanted to catch up with him here at the Welter to just sort of get his get his perspective on how things have gone over the last couple of years you remember James had his big breakthrough ride in the Vuelta España in 2020 when he was sort of going for a top 10 place overall on the penultimate day to the Sierra de Gredos where Tadej Pogacar won his third stage of that Vuelta didn't quite get it but he was certainly earmarked then as a very very promising climber and over the last couple of years as I say has settled into a, a different role and um, you'll hear in this interview his sort of outlook has changed as his status has changed um, at Sudar Quickstep. James will probably be providing updates for us throughout the welter. We sort of struck a, a deal today um, for mm-hmm. him to resume his audio diaries. But in the meantime, um, here I am speaking to James Knox this morning, and he is the subject of today's Encuentro del Día. El Encuentro del Día, the meeting of the day. Yeah, I mean, as always, cycling's uh, got some ups and downs. I'm, I'm, I'm of that sort of uh, quality or standard where you know I'm not when I'm on my when I'm really good, I'm good. But um, maybe struggling to maintain that consistency, you know, little hiccups. So it's nice to be back at a Grand Tour since Giro 2022. Um, I've always got my hand up. I always want to. I you know I always want to be in the biggest races. But uh, this year I'd some problems to start of the year in Australia and that got me yeah that sort of set me back but I was going really well in the spring there with Copy Bartley and uh, what was after that yeah then Pay Basco and then I got Covid in Romandy because uh, I had a good shot of going to the Giro and in the end probably maybe it would have been better because I already had Covid you know all, all our guys got Covid there um, and then I was like long list for the tour but of course it's a difficult selection to make so I'm very happy to be here in the quick set team for the Vuelta um no real major complaints you know I think it's just more of one of those things where um, potentially some small mistakes on my own side but I think there's like a a struggle or a demand or requirement that trying to be really on the top level you know where like I'd say that the top top guys you see how, how good they are all the time but like 
really it, would, it takes everything out of me to be for that one week in, in Basque you know such a big difference where I can, you can sort of I could remark that like Vinger goes going there and he's absolutely kicking everyone's heads in but he's almost doing it for fun and it's not yeah. a big ordeal for him but I came away from that week and I was like is there any solution to that? I don't think there is really I think it's just sort of like a, from my from my feeling it's just like a, a demonstration how good these guys are and you know like it takes everything for me to go there for a week and get involved and get stuck in um, and pay for it for the next for the next month sort of thing but that's just uh, I mean sort of pairing it down to its most basic terms for someone you know from an outsider's point of view who doesn't fully understand what you guys go through you have to be so thin for example I mean yeah. is, that, is that an aspect of it you know if, if say you gave you could give yourself a little bit more leeway on that front would you be a, maybe not reach such high levels but yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know have fewer sort of down periods I don't know yeah I mean I feel like every year in that sense I fall into the same trap where all winter my focus is like not worrying about the weight and being strong and then every time I cut to like January, February, March I'm like oh I could do with losing an extra kilo just to be competitive here so you know then get down to that like extra skinny 58 kilos but it's just not sustainable you know like what what your body's yeah it's just not a sustainable weight to be at and race at you know you, you put your body through quite a lot of stress and demands in the race and when you're already running the sort of like red line of, of race weight um, particularly for, for myself you know like it doesn't feel like I'm yeah, can hold that for very long, you know, and I've, even from like 19, 20 years old, I've had underactive thyroids. I'm on thyroid medication since, yes, for the last like eight years. And I don't know if that's something that, that plays into it, but you know, it's all, it's all part of a balancing act of getting yourself into the top shape, but trying to make it sustainable. Um, you know, the last, again, like this year, I was, I was, I had that week at Swiss and then I was good for national championships, but then there's also not many opportunities to continue that shape and continue, and you know, have other other places to race and then it was a bit of slowing back down again building back up for this so yeah I mean I still can't complain with how things are going I love the sport I love my job but maybe haven't quite built on those first few years in the sport as much as some people might have expected or even myself but it's just part of life isn't it there's a lot of tinkering that goes on, James, particularly now, yeah, everyone looking for these marginal gains. That's a, a potential pitfall, isn't it? I guess a lot of guys, maybe not you, but that's a pitfall that a lot of guys fall into, just constantly thinking, oh, you know, if I just change that, if I change my coach, if I train this way, and, well, that can go badly wrong, can't it? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. I mean, I feel that from my, my perspective as well, where you're always thinking, I can do more, I should do this, I can do that, you know. Um, I've taken I guess what most people consider extreme measures I bought an apartment in Andorra that's at 2,000 metres you know so that's like my very extreme measure you know when you think about it in the sense of what the real world is you know that's like a a permanent residence for me I enjoy it because it means I don't have to do the team can leave me alone a little bit and I don't have to do altitude camp so I get more time at home you know those periods of time where Remco's in Tenerife or guys are going to Colombia I mean I'm just sat in the luxury of my own apartment which is which is great for me and then when the weather's not so good I can spend time elsewhere in whatever whatever but 2000 is very high um, I've heard guys suggest that that's maybe too high and that it's hard to recover at that altitude yeah yeah <laughs> it's easy yeah, hard, yeah. isn't it? You, there you go. Like, what, what can I do now? Move the, move the place down to 1800 meters. So it's so, you know, and these are things that, you know, it's hard to know. When it works, it's great. And if it doesn't work, you don't, you know, you don't completely know. We have all this sort of health and monitoring equipment now with guys monitoring the sleep and whatever, whatever. So, yeah, I think. I think it's always going to be difficult so you're always trying to find that extra and even you know you're always in discussion with other 
spend so much time with other riders as well so half the time you're discussing what they do and you think oh maybe I can put that into mine and you get a little bit more there and there but maybe my level's my level and you know if you just sort of accept the reality of that then you might you might be better off for it but either way I still enjoy it so I'm not gonna it's, it's, it's not, this is not to complain this is not to win this is just a little bit how it is James I don't want to confuse you anymore so we'll, we'll stop talking about that um, just, just finally what's happening next year do you know yet um, as far as contracts are concerned and so on and so forth what can you share with us on that uh, what can I share uh, well, it's fine to share nothing at this point um, not, much is, not much is happening so let's just put it that way Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España Science in Sport fueled by science El ritmo de la vuelta. The rhythm of the vuelta. This is El Ritmo de la Vuelta, our daily excuse to flamenco into the night while clicking our castanets to the rhythm of official Vuelta anthems, great, good, and often unlistenable of your. Today, uh, 1987 is the year, Fran. Were you born in 1987? No. Um, and the official soundtrack of that year's Vuelta a España was laid on or laid down by the Miami Sound Machine, formerly the Miami Latin Boys, until the original members of the band, and in particular their frontman, the Cuban-born Emilio Estefan Jr., were wowed by an impromptu cameo from a student named Gloria Fajardo, at a wedding where they were performing in 1975. Fajardo would soon become Gloria Estefan and the band The Miami Sound Machine, a wildly successful pop ensemble in Latin America. And by the 80s, and the time they wrote Conga in a green room one night after a gig in Utrecht in the Netherlands, one of the biggest acts in the USA. That song Conga would top the charts in Spain, Hence, in part, why it was chosen as Spanish national television's musical accompaniment to the 1987 Vuelta a España. Somewhat serendipitously then, a Latin American band provided the soundtrack for the first ever Latin American victory in a major tour. Lucho Herrera winning by just over a minute from the German Raimund Dietzen. Just four days earlier, it had looked very much as though Sean Kelly would take the first major tour victory of his career. But a few years ago, Kelly told Lionel how his ahem bubble burst, quite literally. Before the time trial, four, five, maybe six days before, I started having this bit of uh, an uncomfortable position on the bike, and it was just getting more and more sore. And then I realised it was, you know, uh, more serious, and it was a saddle sore that just got worse as the days went on of course when you're riding your bike for when you're on there for four or five hours every day you know there's not that possibility where it gets a little bit of time to recover so it just got more and more painful and then we decided just uh, to the doctor of the race he decided to you know to uh, to open it drain it 
and then put in a number of stitches and that was the night before the time trial and uh, the time trial yeah, was just unbelievably painful and uh, some of the stitches actually got pulled a bit in the time trial and um, managed to take the race leader's jersey um, from her era in the time trial but then the following day which if memory uh, serves me right a long time ago three days before the finish uh, I just could not continue after 20, 20 30 k, k kilometres at the stage I had to uh, abandon Well Fran in the words and accent of Sean Kelly it was an, an uncomfortable one Fran uh, saddle sores any experience with saddle sores Fran? Well I have heard that Keep it clean and keep it short Yeah a saddle sore that's what has kept uh, Carlos Verona from racing the Volta a uh, ah, solo source provoked by an airpiece source soster. That's the name in the, that's the name in ah, Spanish. It's herpes. a variety of airpiece. Okay, okay. Yeah. So saddle sore is the reason yeah, for Carlos exactly. Verena. Not. Yeah. We talked about Carlos Verena yesterday. I dropped a very very strong obvious clue as to where he is going to be riding next year. Yeah. Um, Fran, um, Carlos Verena, of course, rides for Movistar. Uh, there. Big boss Eusebio Unzué was on Spanish television after the stage. He was asked about the Carlos Rodriguez saga. Um, we talked about this as well yesterday. How the writing seems to be on the wall. Carlos Rodriguez is going to stay at Ineos. However, un, um, Eusebio said he hasn't given up hope completely, but um, it sounded to me as though that hope is is dangling by a very, very, very thin thread I don't know if you no. uh, you know that we have in Spanish this uh, saying uh, which is soltar la gallina yeah. soltar la gallina release the chicken is whenever you finally accept something after uh, you after being shy about it after not telling any everyone after giving hints and then you reluctantly accept what has happened Eusebio has not released the chicken yet but uh, on Friday Pablo Lastras, the DS for Movistar, released the chicken to me. And he told me, he, st- he stated on the record that Carlos Rodriguez has decided to stay in Ineos and that they wish him the best. It's, I mean, it's, it's been a saga, it's, it's been very interesting, you know, and I, 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 I accept here that I haven't thoroughly listened to every cycling podcast this, this year, but I'm curious, how have you lived this saga from the point of view of the British speaking media for example beginning of July beginning of the Tour de France were you positive that Carlos was going to move to Movistar yeah I mean it's obviously something we've not followed probably as closely as you Um, we'd heard that it was a done deal I'd heard that it it had been a done deal for a long time he was going to go to Movistar months maybe even that the pre-contract agreement was signed last year in 2022 and I suppose it's difficult to disentangle this from this this narrative that's been built up some of it truth I think some of it fiction about Ineos not signing other riders because maybe they are they had been courting Remco Evenepoel maybe hoping for some kind of merger with Sudar Quickstep we gave a little bit more context about that yesterday and also Mm -hmm. the Carlos Verona situation how I mean you know I've heard that that he wasn't the only rider who was so sure that he was going to Ineos Grenadiers that you know there were fittings arranged with equipment manufacturers with Ineos's equipment manufacturers and so on and so forth that was Mm -hmm. his level of certainty but you know it's interesting that 
Ineos had a bad day again today, um, mm. thinking about the, how their team is going to look from a grand tour perspective over the next few years. I don't think Geraint Thomas is out of this Vuelta by any stretch of the imagination, but it wasn't a good day for Aronsman either. Um, and it does, it, I'm not going to say it feels like a desperate move to, 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 to change, have a change of heart about Carlos Rodriguez, but it, it feels to me as though Carlos Rodriguez for them is a bridge to a different future. It's, it, he's an interim solution for the next couple of years until the next, whether it's Remco Evenepoel coming to the end of his conference, um, contract or there being a possibility to buy him out in a year's time or maybe another young star emerging. It feels like Carlos Rodriguez mm-hmm. is going to serve that purpose for them. Um, okay. Fran, we should talk about tomorrow's stage before we run out of time. La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. Fran, yesterday's evening meal, it was, it was a good one. We were back in Cabrils and I had more of this. You tell me, um, in Catalonia, mm-hmm. on a lot of menus, there are these canal, uh, canalones. Mm-hmm. Italian canal, canaloni. Yeah. But is it also considered a typical dish around here? I, I don't think so, but it's also true that uh, Catalonia has had a deep uh, relation, historically, with uh, Sardinia. Ah, so yes. that can be the bridge that Sardinia, <laughs> of course, has even it's even hosted stages of the Volta a Catalunya. Exactly, exactly, and, and 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 there are some theories from the from the Catalanist that says that that uh, Sardinia should also belong to Catalonia. Apparently, at some point in history, it did. So yeah, there is a, re- a cultural relation at least there, and I'm not surprised that it's expressing gastronomy as well. The wine that we had last night, Fran was excellent. Uh, Costeros del Segre, a uh, very dark, deep red wine. But really, in if we're talking about beverages, I would be remiss of me at this point not to mention our loyal and well outstanding uh, listener, um, Karen Bender, who somewhere here, Fran, somewhere maybe in this press room, she brought me. Well, she's dropped off a consignment of my favorite Swiss soft drink Rivella Blue which some intermediary from a Spanish magazine is now in possession of and they're going to give me tonight so that was um, an extremely generous offering from Karen so um, thank you very much and I look forward to enjoying my Rivella Um, Fran I can't believe that I've sacrificed more of your insight about Carlos Rodriguez to talk about uh, a Swiss soft drink (laughs) Uh, uh, Fran if you want to add something about Carlos Rodriguez you can you can I'm not going to veto it but um, was there something was there a a quick footnote a very quick footnote about Carlos Rodriguez if you want I I will I will just you can save it we can have a bumper Carlos okay. Rodriguez. Exactly. We can make Absolutely. a Carlos Rodriguez special at some point. Yeah. I can write. I can write the story as lyrics with some to some song that already exists. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe, karaoke. Maybe, that. maybe not. Maybe not. No. A special edition of El Ritmo de la Vuelta. Fran, um, what have we got tomorrow, please? Tomorrow's stage is quite a straightforward ride, really. It's uh, the way out from Andorra La Bella to again cross deep Catalonia Uh, we are basically driving back and forth today and tomorrow you know that we have driven maybe three hours time today to reach Andorra and tomorrow we are (laughs) we are driving three hours out of it Uh, as for the riders they will have to ride for five hours or so to reach the coast in Tarragona there will be a couple of 
category cat three climbs that in theory shouldn't create much distress because these are large roads and not nothing should happen it should all come down for a sprint and maybe we will finally have an regular day in the Volta is that bad news is that all bad news for Remco Evenepoel because as I alluded to earlier he made no secrets in his press conference of the fact that he will try to give away the red jersey he talked about going away tonight and coming up with a plan to give away the red jersey um from what you've just said Fran you think there are enough there are teams in this welter who will work to ensure a, a sprint mm. tomorrow maybe Alpacin for example for Caden yeah. Groves UAE possibly not for Molano mm. but um, you think it'll be a sprint mm. not a break I mean in, uh, in normal circumstances there should be a sprint as you say we only have two teams that we can consider apt to ride for a sprint which would be Alpacin with uh, Caden Ropes and maybe yes maybe Coffee Disc with Brian Cocart DSM you know, for Dainese DSM I don't know I don't know but maybe maybe yes I mean the, the other last week I saw him in Norway winning a stage in quite a convincing mm. uh, way quite convincing fashion he has become a quite well-rounded rider Albert, Alberto Dainese um, but yeah, I, tomorrow there is also the red jersey up for grabs. Thing is that how many riders are there within shooting distance? Because we saw the peloton reduced down to 50 riders with uh, 20 kilometers and the final climb left. So that means that there is probably 30, 40 riders. With in a five min in the first five minutes of the GC, how much, how big of a gap should a break get in order to for one of their of its members to get the red jersey? In modern cycling, it is unfeasible for a break to make it to the finish line with ten minutes or fifteen. If a sprinter's team is interested in trying yeah, to get I mean, a sprint. Yeah, I mean, you look at a team like Alpacin and just think about their DNA as a, as a team as well. They're very much a, a sprint team. Um, stages like tomorrow are the reason that they are here at the Vuelta España. So yeah, I think true. they they really have to work tomorrow yeah. but I do think I do think DSM D DSM you know they get a lot of criticism but I love the way they commit they committed today and people will mock them and they will say well it should be one of the GC teams working at this point why uh, why is Chris Hamilton trying to wrest control of the race from Robert Hasing but um, they do commit every day they come with a plan I talked about it yesterday their plan mm -hmm. here was to give guys like Max Paul experience and to ride for stage wins and they will continue to do that that's why I think they will work tomorrow mm -hmm. Fran uh, no time for any wistful gazing tonight we've already had we've had half an hour 40 minutes 50 minutes of wistful gazing um, I think Lionel will be back tomorrow but you will be back most days um, on the Vuelta over the next couple of weeks and it's been an absolute pleasure to have you back Fran I'm heading down the mountain now into Andorra La Vella where I'm going to go we always eat um, me and a couple of colleagues always eat a Mexican restaurant in Andorra La Vella which is very good so I'm looking forward to that Mm -hmm. Okay, Good enjoy. Day. It's been a real pleasure to sit down with you and record the second podcast. Thanks, Fran. See you. The cycling podcast was created in 2013 
by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb and Lionel Burney.